This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 20th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Stephen Elledge discusses the link between odd numbers of chromosomes in cancer and immunotherapy with Alexa Billow. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on killer whale menopause. Only three species are known to go through menopause, us humans, short-finned pilot whales, and killer whales. But why do we and these whales have an extended lifetime past reproductive age? One killer whale female lived to 105, but she stopped reproducing nearly 40 years earlier. Meanwhile, the males of this species live a total of only about 30 years. Catherine, what have been some of the theories on this, on, on why there is this extended post-reproductive lifetime in these species? The mean theory is something that applies to us too. It's called the grandmother hypothesis, and it goes like this. In human tribes, if you're lucky enough to make it to old age, and that's a big if, you probably have a wealth of knowledge. I'm sure you do, Sarah, <laughs> for example, that could help everyone else in the tribe, you know, where the best hunting grounds are, how best to birth a baby, and how best to kill a bear. Basically, all sorts of stuff that other people aren't likely to pick up through trial and error. So you're an asset. And since you help the tribe survive by contributing this knowledge, along with finding extra food and doing some babysitting, it's likely that your tribe or your family is going to outcompete others. It's a controversial theory, but that's why biologists think we've got menopause. It gives smart old ladies time off from taking care of their own babies to take care of everyone else. Hmm. In killer whales, this phenomenon is also thought to be at play, since menopausal females are the ones that lead family hunts. Without elderly females, killer whale mortality skyrockets. Oh. 
Now, there's another theory supported by new evidence for another reason this might be going on. That's right. For a long time, scientists knew that killer whales went through menopause, but they weren't 100% sure why. Now, a new study gives another reason. Older females stop having calves to avoid fighting over resources with their eldest daughters once they also start to have their own babies. When that doesn't happen, and both mom and grandma have babies at the same time, nearly one-third of all the calves die. And the older mother is the most likely one to lose her calf. Okay. So what kinds of resources are they competing for and how do grandmother whales help their families then by not having babies? Yeah. So the main resource they're competing for is food. It turns out that a mother that is getting ready to give birth to a calf or who has just had a calf needs, I want to say, 42% more food than she normally does. So, I mean, that's a lot of food. And this is how the grandmothers come into play and also help out because they lead the families on most hunts, finding and catching all that extra food. The senior mothers also probably do some hunting for their sons who live only about 30 years but who pass her genetic legacy on to other whales. Okay, so this makes sense and it still works, grandmother hypothesis, at the same time as this, you know, do not uh, bogart all the resources hypothesis, but – do the researchers have an idea why menopause is so rare across the animal kingdom? So the final answer to that question is still a mystery, but they think it has to do with family structure. Since pods of female whales and their children live together their entire lives, that sets them up for a really unique situation in the animal kingdom. They need to cooperate to find food, but they also have to compete to rear their babies. The same dynamics might well underlie human menopause, too, or at least that's what scientists think. Next up, we have a story on flipping the kill switch. This research is all predicated on optogenetics, being able to turn on and off very specific neurons in the brain with laser light. And in this case, the researchers looked at a region important to hunting. Where is this region, Catherine? It's the amygdala. You might know that this small almond-shaped region of the brain is associated with things like fear and anxiety. So it was a bit of surprise to neuroscientists to find out that it was also active during hunting and feeding in rodents. Intrigued, a team of researchers decided to stimulate neurons in that region that were linked to two pathways, one to control the pursuit of prey and another to control bite accuracy. So in the experimental setting, what happens when they flip the switch and they turn on these circuits related to hunting and feeding? Something out of a bad sci-fi yeah. movie. <laughs> Targeting the pursuit pathways made the mouse move faster or slower. Targeting the bite pathway made the bite weaker or stronger. But targeting them both at once made the mouse stop in its tracks and hunt down almost anything it could find. Crickets, wood chips, even bottle caps. And once it nabbed its prey, it grabbed it, sank its teeth down deep, and delivered a lethal bite. 
I guess in the case of the bottle caps, it probably wasn't exactly lethal. Right. I mean, are they striking at everything? What about if there was another mouse or something like a a person's hand in there? Is that the kind of kill switch that this is? So the mice are at least a bit contained. Um, They didn't go for other mice or for anything bigger than themselves. And that suggests that other parts of the brain might be keeping the amygdala in check in certain situations. But why do researchers think that the amygdala is linked with both hunting and things like fear? It might be that the two behaviors are intimately linked in the wild, say scientists. For example, when a mouse leaves its burrow to hunt, it also has to be worried about other predators. But that's just a hypothesis for now. It still needs to be tested. Lastly, we have a story on citizen science in Fukushima, Japan. In 2011, the Tohoku earthquake caused a tsunami that crippled the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, exposing people in nearby towns and cities to radiation. But how much radiation? How is this typically measured? Radiation doses are typically measured using something called airborne radiation surveys. Basically, researchers attach sensors to helicopters that are flying hundreds of meters above the ground, and then those helicopters measure the gamma rays that are emitted by radioactive cesium down below. Scientists then use scaling laws to convert those measurements to an estimated dose of what people would be exposed to at the ground level. The airborne surveys are easy, cheap, and fast. But no one knew whether they actually did a good job of measuring the radiation doses that people on the ground are actually exposed to. Right. And that's where this one town, about 60 kilometers away from the site, decided that, well, we don't have to evacuate, but we do want to know how much radiation the people who live here are exposed to. So what did they do? The mayor of Date City a small town known for its peaches and persimmons, decided that citizens would start measuring their own radiation exposure five months after the disaster, in August of 2011. At first, it was just pregnant women and children under 16. But within a year, every one of the city's 65,000 people were carrying dosimeters, candy bar-sized sensors that measure those same gamma rays I was telling you about earlier. Residents return their dosimeters every three months for analysis. With all this data in hand, what did they see when they compared these ground level, you know, a person doing their daily life things compared with a helicopter flying over and measuring uh, radiation at that level? Yeah, here's the crazy part. It turns out that the airborne methods were way off. According to this new study, actual doses were just 15% of that predicted by the helicopters. The reason, say scientists, is that most people just don't spend a lot of time outside. They spend most of their time inside, where they're somewhat insulated from the effects of that fallout. Okay, this sounds like good news. There's less danger than previously thought to these residents, right? It's good news, and it's also bad news. (laughs) Now, researchers can better predict actual radiation doses and health effects based on these airborne surveys. And you're right that there may be less danger than thought. But the bad news, at least in this case, is that people have already invested a lot into restoring these areas. Everything from decontamination to throwing away tons and tons of food. And that's billions of dollars that could have been spent on other things. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on solving the mystery of Namibia's fairy circles and another on a heart sleeve, 
a new device that fits around failing hearts to help them pump blood. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have ongoing coverage of science-related U.S. cabinet hearings and news on the disappearance of a widely used blacklist of predatory publishers. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com science. That's Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, or hit a festival, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including a pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports because you know the last thing you want is for someone's device to run out of power. And one of my favorite features is Driver Easy Speak which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the condition of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See Owner's Manual for additional limitations and details. The TSS pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Our immune systems are constantly scanning the body on the lookout for foreign invaders, But what happens when the threat comes from within, like in cancer? The ability to evade the immune system is widely known as a hallmark of cancer. Recently, therapeutic strategies have focused on recruiting the immune system and pointing it at a tumor. And it works pretty well, except when it doesn't. Research published in Science this week sheds new light on the relationship between changes in the number of chromosomes or parts of chromosomes, known as aneuploidy, and a cell's ability to evade the immune system. Stephen Elledge joins us to talk about this research. I'm Alexa Billow. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks. I, I look forward to this. So first of all, can you set the stage for us a little bit? Give us some background about how you came to this study and this topic of immunotherapy. 
initially we were interested in just a very basic question about cancer evolution and how aneuploidy shapes cancer evolution. We've been studying this for about four years off and on, and the reason we were interested in it is, you know, for, for the longest time, people didn't even know if aneuploidy really drove cancer or not, or if it was just a byproduct, a passenger of cancer evolution. But it turned out that there, if you looked at enough cancers, even though each one individually is very different, there is a pattern of which chromosomes would be amplified or deleted across all cancers. And that could either be because those events occur more frequently or because they're selected for. And so we began several years ago to study this problem, and it turns out that the frequency that you could see certain chromosomes amplified or deleted had to do with the distribution of cancer drivers on those chromosomes. We knew that these events were driving cancer at some level because we could predict it with pretty high efficiency. We could predict the, the frequency. But we wanted to know more about how aneuploidy was driving cancer. And so we asked a very simple question, which was whether or not there were differences in the transcriptome of high aneuploidy tumors versus low aneuploidy tumors. And what we found were two things. One was that high aneuploidy tumors had higher expression of genes involved in the cell cycle, which meant that they were more proliferative. And the second thing that we found which was really the surprising thing, and the link to immunotherapy, was that high aneuploidy tumors had many fewer transcripts that were normally expressed in immune cells. And so when you uh, take a tumor and extract all the RNA out of it, you're not only taking tumor cells, but you're taking the RNA from all the cells that are there. And since the immune cells are quite unique in their pattern of gene expression, you can infer the presence of those cells by looking at the transcripts that are unique to them that show up in the entire tumor. And what we found was that high aneuploidy tumors have a lot fewer of those transcripts, and therefore they have a lot less immune invasion. So what you're saying is normally immune cells should be invading the tumor and trying to kill it, and you can see that because you can pick up the genes that they express, but when there's a high degree of aneuploidy, that's not happening. Do you have a model or do you have a mechanism for how aneuploidy might be helping tumors to evade the immune system? In terms of how it works, this is something we don't really know because the data that we have is purely correlative. But with respect to the mechanism, there's something that's very interesting about it. And when we set up the matrix to score tumors for aneuploidy, there are two basic types of aneuploidy that we look at. One are whole chromosome arm events or whole chromosomes, big events where you gain or lose almost a whole chromosome. And then there are other smaller events we call focal events where you delete a chunk of a, of a chromosome or amplify it, but it's smaller, less than a half of a chromosome arm, and usually much less. So knowing that we had these different types of aneuploidy, we could ask the question, which ones of those are more associated with the transcriptional signatures that we were looking at? And so what we found was that the kinds of events that drive the transcription of cell cycle genes, that, that enhancement, those are primarily driven by focal events. And that is a group, a small group of genes that are deleted or amplified together, as opposed to whole chromosomes or chromosome arms. They both contribute, but the focal events contribute more. And that makes sense if you think that it's individual groups of genes that are driving proliferation, which is what we think. 
because a focal event is more selective and it can choose the best part of the chromosome to delete or amplify to get the major effect. But if you take the whole chromosome, then you sort of take the good with the bad, and, and there's more good than bad for the tumor, but it's not as strong an effect. So that was one thing that we found. In contrast, we saw that the reduction in immune infiltration was controlled not by the focal events, but by whole chromosome and whole chromosome arm events. And that suggests it's a different mechanism. And that suggests that the way antiplatelet works is not through different gene sets, but through probably a property that has to do with the gain or loss of whole chromosome arms. The way that you can think about that is that it's probably not individual genes, but it may be a consequence of aneuploidy itself, such as proteotoxic stress. We know that the mechanisms of what's affecting the immune system and what's affecting the cell cycle are different. The question is then, they're different, but how does the dosage of this many genes affect the immune system? And that's something that we we can speculate about, but we don't know the answer to. So in the study, rather than presenting a brand new wonder drug, this sort of seems to give us a way to predict whether drugs that already exist are going to work. Is this going to have any impact on patient care or is this more of an interesting sort of observation for scientists to play with? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really early to predict the significance of the observation. I would say that immediately it allows you to better predict who is going to respond to immunotherapy, and that's what we show in the paper, that we can predict better whether or not a particular patient with a tumor that has high or low aneuploidy, whether they will respond to immunotherapy. We've only looked at one type of immunotherapy so far, that's anti CTLA-4 antibodies, and we see that it actually is a pretty good predictor. It can increase the prediction of who's going to respond by a factor of two or three. And the interesting thing about this, of course, is that the difference between the number of neoantigens and aneuploidy is that aneuploidy is a much stronger predictor. And all the epithelial-like tumors that we looked at we looked at 12 tumor types, two were brain and the rest were epithelial, that all 10 of those were the antiplatelet could predict immune infiltration for all the solid tumors of epithelial origin. That's a pretty strong predictor. It doesn't work in the brain, but that's a more complicated situation because of the blood-brain barrier and immune cell interaction and entry. But if we can predict who's likely to respond to a particular therapy, I think that that's really helpful because it may be that only a subset of a certain class, this is, this is sort of a fundamental problem in setting up any sort of clinical trial, which is if you want to know if something works, you want to get the patients that are most likely to be responsive and to, to see if there's any efficacy at all. And so likewise, if you know, aneuploidy helps predict who's going to respond, then you might want to take that into account when you design a clinical trial. Now, it remains to be seen whether this will also predict other types of therapies, such as anti-PD-1 or PDL one therapies that are out there, or some of the even newer therapies that are emerging. Until the clinical trials are done that are, and, and the patients have their tumor sequenced simultaneously, we can't know that. But in terms of predicting who should get it, I think that that's really good. Does this finding about aneuploidy suggest any new therapeutic strategies or paths for targeting 
tumors with high aneuploidy? I think it, it does give us at least a potential path forward, and it remains to be seen whether or not we will solve the problem. But if we can understand the mechanism of how aneuploidy is inhibiting this immune response, then we can potentially try to undo the damage that it's done to the immune system and restore the ability of a tumor cell to do whatever it does to recruit the immune system. And if that has something to do with antigen presentation, which is our, our best guess at this moment, we would be improving antigen presentation of these tumors, and that would make them look a lot more like diploid tumors, which respond a lot better. And so that is, of course, where this is headed in the future. The person in my lab who did this, Teresa Devoli, who's a postdoc in my group, will start her own lab in a year and will be really focused on, on this particular question. Stephen, thanks so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Stephen Elledge and colleagues report on the relationship between tumor aneuploidy and immunotherapy in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.